Um, before I begin today, I want to make sure that you guys have a chance to wish James Goldsmith, who works in our painting department, a happy 50th birthday tomorrow. Uh, he, he's a man who serves often quietly behind the scenes um, to keep our campus beautiful and um, always has a kind word and encouraging thought to share. And so I just want to honor him today. Um, I also want to tell you if you are um, in the habit of procrastinating, you got to stop because when you get to my age, you can't stop and it just is, it makes life a little difficult. So, so if you're in that habit now, try to, try to work against that because like 20 years from now, it's hard. Um, uh, so let me pray for us and um, then I have a few words to share with you. Father, thank you for bringing us together today. Thank you for your kindness, your mercy towards us. Thank you that we can bless your name um, because of your grace. Um, thank you for that grace today. Um, I need it. Everyone in this room needs it. And I pray that you would give it to us freely as you've promised to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, I want to read just a brief passage from Colossians 3, um, verses 12 through 17. One of my favorite passages, um, the whole chapter, but um, these verses in particular. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving one another. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Um, in this passage, previous, previous to this passage, Paul has explained what this new life we are living is all about. He encourages us to embrace the life that we have in Christ, that we're seated with him in the heavenly places. But that has implications for how we live on earth, for how we love and bear with others, forgive, and even how we sing. And I want to talk to you today about singing in the choir and what I've learned through this. I've been singing for a long time. My family always encouraged us to sing. Um, my musical influences were a little limited growing up, but we were always encouraged to sing. I have some memories of Christmas caroling with my four siblings being like carted around as our own little family choir to older folks in our church's homes and, and singing there. I sang in school choirs from fifth grade the whole way through high school. And then for a number of years um, in a more classically oriented church choir in Philadelphia. When I began attending my current church here in Chattanooga, Resurrected Baptist, the music and the choir was one thing that attracted me. I'm not as a participant necessarily, um, but as a help to worship. Um, it really helped me fit into worship, and it fit the church. Once I heard it, I couldn't imagine it any other way, not at Resurrected. Um, but I didn't imagine myself joining a gospel choir. Um, Part of me resonates a little bit with the experience of Dietrich Bonhoeffer when he spent a year worshiping at Abyssinian Baptist Church in Harlem. 
Like you thought you'd get away with the chapel without hearing me talk about him, right? There's more coming, don't worry. Uh, my church is small in a small city, not filled with important people or power brokers, um, although we have lots of talented city leaders in our midst. And Abyssinian was quite the opposite. Um, just a few years before Bonhoeffer arrived, they had built a new church building on 100th, 138th Street in Harlem. Pastor Adam Clayton Powell Sr. declared proudly not a ticket or a dish of ice cream was sold to pay for the erection of Abyssinian Baptist Church and Community House. Every dollar of the money was brought in through tithes and offerings, and God fulfilled his promise by pouring out a blessing upon us that our souls were not able to contain. Though the church itself had been in existence since 1808, this new building was monumental, both in its construction and in the statement it made about the success of the black community of Harlem. Well, and their choir was well known in leading the way in church music during the Harlem Renaissance. So Bonhoeffer would have heard the best of early gospel music on a regular basis. How different from his own classical piano training, his German Lutheran hymns and chorales. Yet the music he heard in the black church stayed with him. He took recordings of spirituals back to Germany. And those who were part of Finkenwalde, his seminary experiment of community, remember hours of listening to those recordings. Now, my church choir is not at the level of Abyssinian. Um, yet in Chattanooga, if you're in black church music circles, you would know Resurrected. Um, we're a small choir with a big sound. Sometimes there's only 10 of us that show up, but everybody's like, whoa, it sounds like this huge choir. Um, I know, it's kind of hard to believe I'm part of that sometimes. Um, so you can imagine my introduction to music at Resurrected Baptist um, after having spent over 30 years in very white churches with very strong understandings of what was the right way to worship. I had and have a lot to learn. About two years into my time there, enough people had invited me to join the choir and give it a try that I thought maybe I should give it a go. Um, and these are some of the things that, that have come to me just over the years as I have been in that choir, things that I have learned and kind of in the choir but then also have applied to, to my life. Um, when you're in a choir, particularly when you join a new choir with music that you are unfamiliar with, you ask yourself a lot of questions. Okay, one, how does this practice work? Where does my voice fit in with the larger sound? How in the world am I gonna learn these songs without music in front of me? You know, if you know me at all, this is huge. You know how scripted I am. I mean, every word is written here. Um, I do not have the gift of gab. I am not able to just fill space with my words on a whim. Um, and in previous choirs, I could sight-read the music, I could go home, pick out notes on the piano, difficult parts, listen for my part as the director would play, play things for each section. Um, at Resurrected, we learn music a whole different way. It's really all about listening. My director, Jarvis, he of perfect pitch and rhythm and an ear for what will sound just right and what our small choir can or can't do, he doesn't give us sheet music. Sometimes he gives us the words written out, but not always, rarely actually. Um, and he teaches by singing our parts to us, line by line. He sings it two or three times so we can hear it and we begin kind of quietly singing along with him. And then we sing with him more boldly. And finally, we sing it on our own so he can hear us and make the needed corrections. Sometimes this takes a minute or two um, as we pick things up quickly, sometimes it's a much longer process, especially for songs with tough harmonies. If you know anything about the history of lining out, how much singing was done over the years in the African-American church and, and in other Southern gospel 
churches as well. The song leader sings a line and the congregation sings it back. And that's a little bit of what's happening in the choir setting, except for with parts. Um, but listening becomes key to learning. I've never seen sheet music for any of the songs that we sing. I have to practice my listening skills, train my ears, listen to recordings if there are any available. Sometimes he's making up his own arrangements so there aren't any recordings available. And then even more key is listening to my alto line in connection to the soprano and the tenor lines. How does this part fit in? Often our line sounds odd on its own, but once you hear it in context with the other parts, it's easier to sing. Some of you know what this is like, whether in an orchestra, a choir, a jazz band, a simple two-part harmony duet. The other voices, the sounds as you listen and sing give you an understanding of the whole. So what does it mean to listen well? In my experience at Resurrected, it's not just in the choir that I have needed to listen to find my place, but in the worship service, listening to the prayers, listening to the congregational response to the preached word, listening to my friends and my family in that place as we talk to one another, share our lives and stories. In Life Together, Bonhoeffer talks about listening as the first act of service needed in a community. He says, we do God's work for our brothers and sisters when we learn to listen to them. Many people seek a sympathetic ear and do not find it among Christians because these Christians are talking even when they should be listening. What does it look like to really listen to someone else? To not be immediately trying to give them an answer to their problem. To allow them to open up hurt and pain before you. And not just brush that over, not just give them a verse to help, but to sit in that pain with them, to put an arm of comfort around them, to weep with them. Most people are longing for connection, for a feeling of belonging, a sense of welcome, and when we listen to them, we begin to offer that connection, that belonging, that welcome, sometimes without saying a word. As I've spent more and more of my life getting to know people from all different backgrounds, I've found that listening is more helpful than almost anything else I can do. Valuing their story, valuing the lessons they have learned, learning from them, it changes me. We do have to be careful even in, especially in our desire to always have the right thing to say, the right answer when we listen. Bonhoeffer continues, there's also a kind of listening with half an ear that presumes already to know what the other person has to say. This impatient, inattentive listening really despises the other Christian and finally is only, wanting, is only waiting to get a chance to speak and thus to get rid of the other. But Christians have forgotten that the ministry of listening has been entrusted to them by the one who is indeed the great listener and in whose work they are to participate. When we listen, we begin to see how the line of our life is shaped by others, how each person's experience has something to teach us, that God moves differently in each person's life. When we listen, we realize how much we have to learn, how incomplete our own knowledge is. This is true, of course, as we hear the everlasting word, when God himself speaks to us through the Bible. But is it also true of the people, Christians and non-Christians, that God puts around us? We begin to listen for common threads, for unusual and magnificent stories, for pain that cannot even be expressed. We begin to see how God's image is revealed more fully to us as we grow to know 
and love the people around us through listening. And we actually minister to others through this listening. It's active. So when you join any group, choir or team, you listen to learn some history. If you don't learn some history, if you don't take advantage of the remembrances being passed down, you will make some pretty egregious mistakes. Now, of course, you can't avoid failure altogether. I hope you know that. Failure is how we learn, as much as I hate to admit that. And really, I do everything I can to avoid experiencing it. I think some of you probably are the same. Um, but we do need to fail at times. Uh, we sing a song in my choir that I love. It reminds me of our call to witness to others of the work of God, a call to not forget, to remember our history. This goes back a little bit to Dr. Green's talk on Monday of the vital importance of memory, particularly as Christians. It goes, you ought to have been there. You ought to have been there when he saved my soul. I'll never forget what he's done for me. I'll never forget how he set me free. I'll never forget how he brought me out. How without a doubt, I can't forget the day he washed my sins away. I can't forget what he's done for me. And as we sing this, we're reminding ourselves of our own history with God, but calling others to remember theirs as well. As part of the choir, one of my communities within a community at Resurrected, I've been inducted into the richness of the musical heritage of the African-American community. Now, of course, like many white Americans, I had heard and sung spirituals. I had known some jazz and blues, but I didn't really see its depth and meaning until I sang it with my family in the choir. Saw how the older songs in particular moved people, brought back memories, led to outbursts of praise or weeping. When I hear the first organ chords that let me know we're about to launch into by and by, and I really, like, sometimes we just don't even know what the next song is going to be, and so we hear the, hear the chords, and we're like, okay, that's the song we're going to sing. And that one is one that I know right away, the first chord. Some of them take me a little bit longer. Um, but my heart wells up when I hear those chords, but I'm also a little conflicted. It goes like this. We are often tossed and driven on this restless sea of time. Somber skies and howling tempests oft succeed a bright sunshine. In that land of perfect day, when the mists have rolled away, we will understand it better by and by. This is some rich theology. It's an acknowledgement of a very real and present suffering, combined with a hopeful look to the future, of a day when things will be set right. It makes it one of my favorite songs to sing. It's pain and hope, suffering and joy. But at the same time, it's, it's not really my memory, my experience, uh, my lack of comprehension about the time it was written, the early part of the 20th century when lynching was a very real and near threat, when death haunted the lives of black folks in America. Yet somehow I'm allowed to enter into that history through music with my voice. Bonhoeffer again says, we must learn to regard people less in the light of what they do or omit to do and more in the light of what they suffer. If this is the case, my brothers and sisters at Resurrected and their forefathers and foremothers are to be more highly regarded as those in the African-American community and others who have experienced suffering, particularly suffering at the hands of others. No doubt when he wrote this, Bonhoeffer was reminded of his own experiences in America, the reality he saw of prejudice and discrimination but also what was currently happening in Germany and the suffering of the Jewish people in particular. And certainly he was looking to a suffering savior who in his very suffering did what we could not do for ourselves. So what does it look like to encounter the history of other communities, to embrace that history, not appropriate it, 
<clears throat> not shape it as you want it to be, but to hear it, to walk in the knowledge of its truth, and to live presently in light of it. What will it look for you to recognize your own privilege, to see ways that your life presently has been shaped by the suffering of those who lived before you, who lived out the gospel, the love and kindness of God and Jesus toward those who oppressed them? How will you, if like me you're part of a majority culture, deal with your own privilege and place? Will you, in humility, learn and listen? Will you admit the sin of those who have come before you? Will you admit your own sin? How will you interact with those you have considered to be other? Bonhoeffer, shocking, I know, once more, on what it means to begin to see the image of God in others instead of judging them. He said, we will be able to stop constantly keeping an eye on others, judging them, condemning them, and putting them in their places and doing violence to them. The view of such persons expands, and to our amazement, we recognize for the first time the richness of God's creative glory shining over our brothers and sisters. God did not make others as I would have made them. God did not give them to me so that I could dominate and control them, but so that I might find the creator by means of them. God does not want me to mold others into the image that seems good to me, that is, into my own image. How often have we tried to make others into our own image, in ways we would like them to be, exerting control and power over them in myriad of ways? As you walk around Covenant, when you go into Chattanooga, when you leave these places, will you seek out the image of God in others? Will you recognize our common humanity? Will you see the richness of God's creative glory in all the people he has made? In a choir, every person's voice matters. Each one has to sing, has to get the rhythm right, has to know the words, or it shows. And when we all follow the director, each voice must be present to, to create the larger sound. In the same way in God's kingdom, his delight is in individuals, in the myriad of ways he has created them. But his goal is a huge worshiping choir, praising him with a new song, delighting in him, united in their praise to him, even if they sing in different styles, in different languages. And one last thing that's happened since I joined the choir four years ago. I think I've moved from learning and listening, although I'm still doing that and will likely, I hope, never stop, to love. Musicians out there, you know the feeling when you've committed a song to memory. Um, you don't have to think about, what's the next word? What's the next note? Where does that other part fit in? How's this going to sound? You know the rhythm. You hear it in your head. The words or the next notes come to you easily. The better you learn your music, the freer you begin to feel. In some senses, in my choir, we never have music, so we're always relying on listening, on memory, on our history together. Our Thursday night rehearsals of a new song, singing, we sing it then on Sunday, and I'm trying all the while to desperately commit it to memory. It's a little bit painful for me, um, but I also trust my fellow choir members. I implicitly trust my director. Here's the thing. When you're forced to use your memory, you begin to learn songs deep down. You don't just sing them once and forget them. And then when your choir is out singing at another church, as we often do, and you look down at the program and you see we're supposed to sing six selections in the service, well, the memory vault gets opened up. And what almost invariably ends up happening is that we are freed up to really sing and move and praise because we know those songs so well. That said, the first time this happened, after I'd only been in the choir a few weeks, 
and I didn't know any of the old repertoire, I think it would have been pretty hilarious to have been sitting in the congregation and watch me like try to figure out, oh, what's this song? What am I doing? I don't know any of the words. I don't know the rhythm. I can't clap right. So I'm sure you can picture that in your mind a little bit. I do often. <laughs> but what happens as these songs become part of you is you begin to love them. There's a love for the music, the lyrics, or the verses. So many of the songs I get to sing are scripture verses. The way an old hymn has been rearranged completely. A love for the history of these songs, for how they speak to the present moment of worship. Ultimately, a love for God who created the music and the people singing it. And a love for the people around me, the choir and the congregation. And when love is there, our hearts are changed. You know this if you know Jesus. Think back to the first time you really knew that God loved you, that he delighted in you, that you understood his never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love, as Sally Lloyd-Jones says in the Jesus Storybook Bible. This love that first loved us, that allows us to enter into loving our God, the high and exalted one, yet the one who is near to us. But that love also empowers us to extend love to others. And this amazing thing happens when you begin loving others. You begin to care about what affects them. You want to hear their history. It's not just about an academic exercise of doing a report or asking questions and getting the answers. Um, you see what's painful to them. You're not just aware of injustice that occurs. You actually start seeing the results of it around you. And a desire builds within you to walk alongside, to understand further. To not just reconcile, but to walk together forward in shared goals. The willingness to give up power or comfort or whatever it takes to give up to see the image of God fully displayed in those around you. So I want to encourage you to get a little bit uncomfortable. To learn to praise God in a new way. To learn a new way of loving and living to be honest about your own history, and to learn from the history and the stories of others. Go ahead and fail spectacularly. Trust the grace of God and the love of your brothers and sisters in the midst of that. Listen carefully and well. Move from a mere acceptance of difference, or worse, an overlooking of difference altogether, to a wholehearted delight in the creative passion of the great artists, rejoicing in the God who made each of us, whose creative work shows itself out gloriously if we will just open our eyes and our heart. Because of Christ and his work, you and I can walk with courage and rejoicing into the kingdom that is coming, that will come, and that will never end. I'm going to dismiss you with just a few verses from Psalm 33. It begins like this. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. Amen. You're dismissed.